uh, let me invite you um, to, to take out your Bible, uh, get a copy of God's Word. Uh, maybe it's a physical copy of God's Word. Um, maybe you have an iPad or iPhone. Uh, but turn with me to the book of First Peter. The book of First Peter. Uh, we've been in this book now for, for quite a long time, quite a season. Uh, but we've actually paused uh, a few different times, sort of strategically, um, for, for Christmas. We had a series uh, for Christmas. Uh, we did a sermon series uh, for our 21 days of, of prayer and fasting campaign. And then most recent, recently, we paused the sermon series uh, for, for Easter, Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday, and then, and then last uh, week when we, we talked a little bit about post-resurrection Jesus. Um, but then now today, uh, we, we come back to this, this book, and, and today sort of begins the tail end of our study in First Peter. We actually have uh, just about four weeks left together here, and, and this is where we've been uh, in First Peter. This is, I guess I'll say it this way, this is First Peter uh, in a nutshell. First Peter uh, was written by the Apostle Peter who we know uh, was a witness of the life, the death, uh, and the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, this man, Peter, he, he knew Jesus personally. Uh, when we celebrated Palm Sunday and, and Jesus riding on a donkey into Jerusalem a few weeks ago, Peter was there. Uh, when we celebrated Easter just, just two weeks ago and, and Jesus' bodily resurrection, you know, he left the tomb, left the grave, Peter was there. He was an eyewitness. He saw Jesus. Peter was a devoted follower of Christ. This man, Peter, we know, he was a man, uh, at one time, just an everyday fisherman, worked for his father's business, but over time, after meeting Jesus, after experiencing the resurrection, we know he was radically transformed by the grace of God and eventually became a leader in the early church. We also know Peter was later martyred, um, killed for his faith in Jesus. And so this is the Peter who is writing to us uh, in this letter. And what Peter is doing uh, in this letter is helping, he's helping followers of Jesus learn how to navigate through this life. He wants us to know uh, how to live in a world that is not our true home. That's why Peter calls followers of Jesus things like exiles uh, and sojourners throughout this letter. He calls us strangers because this world has radically, radically different worldviews, philosophies, convictions, and perspectives than his readers or than followers of Jesus. And so, with that in mind, because that's true... Peter starts his letter by reminding them, those early followers of Jesus, and us, now the church, of who we are in Jesus. He reminds us of that. He tells us that we are these brand new, redeemed people of God who have actually been brought into a relationship with the Lord. That because of Jesus and through faith in Jesus, we have been, he says, born again into a living hope. We've been set apart, made holy. We've also, we've been 
uh, we've become part of the family of God, he says. And then in light of those incredible truths about who we are, Peter then moves, he shifts uh, to encouraging us to, to live our lives in light of those realities. Live according to what is true about you. That's really the rest of his letter. And if you study through this letter, this book, maybe you've done that through the, in this season, you've just read through all of First Peter, I would encourage you to do that. Even just in one sitting, it was meant to be read that way. Just read it all through in one sitting. But if you study that letter, you read through that letter, one of the things that will grab your attention, I think almost right away, is how often Peter addresses the topic of suffering as a result of following Jesus. And that's because Peter was writing to this small, persecuted group of people who were undergoing pain, difficulty, hardship, and loss. These people were even dying for their faith in Jesus, for belonging to Jesus. And of course, we know all of us who follow Jesus will face hardships in our lives. We see that so many times throughout the scriptures. All the apostles, all of the New Testament writers address this. And even Jesus himself teaches this. Uh, teaches this that those who follow Jesus will go through trials of many kinds. That they will be persecuted for their faith that they will regularly face opposition in their lives, and that they will even be hated, hated, Jesus says, because of their faith. And if you've, again, followed Jesus closely, if you've been following Jesus closely for any amount of time, you know that that's true. You know that's true. Which is why at times, why at times following Jesus can be really hard. It can be a struggle. It can actually even at sometimes be, be confusing. And sometimes it's so hard, following Christ is so hard, that it can even make us wonder, is all this really worth it? Is this path that I'm on, following Jesus, trying to live for Jesus, trying to obey God, is it really worth it? And so Peter addresses that here in his letter. And he reminds us, he, he encourages us, I should say, he encourages us by reminding us that our hardships, our difficulties, our trials in life, our suffering is not a path to nowhere. What we go through in this life, the rocky roads, they're not a path to nowhere. That actually Jesus himself endured suffering And that led to his victory. And the same, therefore, the same will be true of us. And so we shouldn't give up. That's Peter's message. Well, with that in mind, uh, today we open chapter 4 of this letter, where Peter is going to show us further how to endure, how to endure suffering. He wants to help us navigate and persevere through difficult seasons of our life. He wants to help you endure suffering, okay? 
And so this is what he says. He says this, verse one. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. We're going to be in verses 1 through 6 today, but the key passage of this portion of the text is found in this last phrase there, or here, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. That's the key phrase for today. And what Peter is going to to tell us here is that there is a way of thinking, there's a way of thinking that will help you endure whatever you go through in this life. That there's actually a a perspective that can help you, that will help you make it through difficult seasons. That's what all this is about. It's interesting, uh, that term arm there, you can see it there, that term arm, um, it actually has military connotations, okay? You see, uh, Peter is concerned, he's very concerned that you and I are prepared to battle our trials and our troubles. He's very concerned that we are equipped, that we're armed, we're ready to battle the trials, the troubles, the suffering that will come our way. And so just as soldiers are prepared for battle by arming their weapons, followers of Jesus arm themselves for suffering by what? By arming their minds. That's what Peter says. That we prepare ourselves, we arm ourselves for hardships by thinking rightly. By thinking rightly. And this is so, so important. So important. Particularly in a culture that so often elevates feeling over thinking. And God certainly uh, does care about our feelings. He does. He cares about your feelings. And so um, if you've taken those tests, you know, we've all done it. It's like our generation thing. Oh, are you like an INTJ? Are you an ESFP or whatever? Okay, you've all done that. So if you're a big feeler here today, like don't panic, all right? Don't panic. All right? God does care about your feelings. God created you and I to feel. And he wants us to use our feelings to experience him. He wants our hearts, I'll say it this way, he wants our hearts set ablaze for him. He wants, God wants, our highest joy in life to be found in him. But let's be clear. Those depths of emotion and those heights of joy do not appear out of nowhere, and nor should they. You see, I feel, I feel deeply about God because of what I know about God. I feel deeply about God because of what I know about God. In other words, my mind stokes the fire of my heart. Or you could think of it this way. Our thinking serves our affections. That's how it works. I know in today's culture, uh, you know, we, or so often, a lot of us, we tend to lead with our feelings. 
And, and what we do is we actually allow how we feel to shape how we think. But that's actually a really dangerous path to take. Because what, when we do that, what happens is it makes truth subject to our emotions. And in that, what happens is I end up believing things that are, are we, I end up thinking something is good or something is not good how I, based on how I feel about it. But that's not the right order of things. It's not intended to be that way. Our feelings are not meant to do our thinking for us. I really like what Pastor John Piper says about this. He says this. I believe this is an excerpt of Desiring um, God. Um, This is what he says. Right thinking about God exists for the sake of right feelings for God in that order. Logic exists for the sake of love. Reasoning exists for the sake of rejoicing. Doctrine exists for the sake of delight. Reflection about God exists for affection for God. The head is meant to serve the heart. Knowing the truth, like this, knowing the truth is the basis of admiring the truth. So we are made to think rightly about God. And when we think rightly, what happens is our hearts will be full of admiration and joy. But along with that, Peter tells us here that our right thinking can and will help us to persevere when times are hard. That's where we're going here this morning. That our right thinking, not only, not only does it make our hearts, cause our hearts to be full of joy and admiration, to be in awe of the Lord, but also our right thinking can and will help us to endure suffering. That if we're going to endure, if we're going to persevere, make it through this world, this this world that's not our true home, if we're going to live our lives as exiles, we need to set our minds, set our minds on what is true, just like Jesus. And resolve, resolve, make a determination in our minds to see ourselves and to see the Lord Jesus Christ rightly. From our text today, so here's where, that's kind of the backdrop. Um, What we're going to do is we're going to pull out three ways, three ways in which Peter is calling us to arm our our thinking so that we can endure these hardships and sufferings, okay? And so here we go. Number one, if you want to endure suffering in your life, if you want to endure suffering, number one, we need to know that suffering for Jesus is inevitable, If you want to endure trials, hardships, heartache, difficulty in your life, endure suffering, we need to know, we need to know that suffering for Jesus is inevitable. Going back to verse 1, we don't have it on the screen yet, but if you have a copy of God's word, you, you see that word there, therefore. It says, therefore. 
which tells us that, that Peter is continuing with his previous thought. Namely, if you flip back, chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, where Peter says that Jesus' path of victory, his path of victory was paved with his death. That it was actually Jesus' suffering that led to his victory. And so the stream of thought here is that if you and I hope to share in Jesus' victory, if we hope to have life, if we want to have joy, peace, love, we too, we too will need to walk this same path of heartache and hardship, just like Jesus. And so people who endure trials, they're aware of this. They know this. I'll say it this way. Listen, one of the best ways, one of the best ways that you and I can be prepared for suffering and hardship in our life is simply just to know that they are inevitable. It's coming. That it's not if you will face trials of many kinds. It's when. It's when. You will face difficulties. You will suffer in your journey of following Jesus. It's inevitable. Just like, just like traffic is inevitable when you get in a car in Seoul. It's inevitable. It doesn't matter. I've tried every time, every day of the week, in every season over the last seven years. Because I don't like traffic. Okay, I grew up in a really small town of like 5,000 people with three stoplights. Okay? And so I had to stop three times, you know, when I'm going somewhere. But I knew the ways around the stoplights. It's a small town. Here, it doesn't matter. I will literally, I'll try, okay, Monday, I'll wake up at whatever, 6.30 a.m. to get, and then traffic. It doesn't matter. Midnight, it doesn't matter. There's always cars on the road. It doesn't matter. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. And in the same way, unjust suffering is inevitable as we follow Jesus. So, Peter wants us to prepare our minds for that reality. He wants us to be prepared for that. Because here's what happens if you don't. If you're not prepared for suffering. If you don't know suffering is coming, hardships are coming. If you don't expect hardships to come in your life, then you'll question God. You'll doubt his love. You'll doubt his care. You'll be tempted to be discouraged. And maybe for some of us, and this has happened within Christianity, maybe you'll even give up and walk away. It's just too hard. And so Peter lovingly reminds us to be prepared. Be prepared, just like Jesus was. Jesus knew the end. He was preparing himself from the very beginning for the end, for his suffering. And Peter says, do the same. He wants us to know that this is just a natural part of the journey. And so arm yourself, he says, with that thinking. So that when suffering comes into your life, you'll be ready. 
Suffering will come into your life. That trial will come into your life. And you'll say, aha, there you are. I've been waiting for you. I've been waiting for that call. I've been waiting for you to knock at my door. I've been expecting you. Welcome, suffering. (laughs) I'm ready for you. If we approach suffering and hardships and difficulties that way, we are much more likely to make it through. That's where Peter starts. Let's keep going, though, with verse 1, because he continues this train of thought. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh, that's Peter's language for facing hardships for doing good, okay? Whoever has suffered in the flesh, suffered for doing good, has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. We have to take a moment to to pause there. A lot of this text that we're going to go through today, it's a little bit wordy and some of it's a little bit confusing. So we've got to pause intentionally a few different times. Particularly where it says there, um, has ceased from sin. Let's be really clear. Peter here, Peter here is not talking about someone who never sins again or has achieved the ability to never sin again. They've attained this sort of sinless perfection in their lives because they've suffered in this life. Uh, we know that that's not, not true because of the rest of the scriptures. Right? No one, no one will be, can be totally free from sin in this life, in this world. Though, though there should be, there should be a trajectory of growth in your life, in your spiritual walk with Jesus, where you're, I say it this way, sinning less frequently, okay? There should be that sanctification process in your, your life. And so when Peter says, cease from sin here, we know actually that he's talking about breaking free from a life that is dominated or defined by sin. Again, it's not that you will never commit any acts of sin, but that your old life, your old life that was dominated by the power of sin has been defeated. It's been conquered. That's what he's saying here. And and that person, he says, that person who's conquered, who has that victory over sin, he says, now chooses to live the rest of their time, that is, the rest of their days, or their everyday life. That would be a better English translation. They live their everyday life for God and for God's will. Not, not for their flesh and for their sinful desires. That's what Peter says. That these people, these individuals, really it's followers of Christ, they resolve to live for God, which results to radical change in their lives. Meaning, meaning that these individuals, you and I, if you're in Christ, will look, act, and speak different than others around us when we spend our days, our everyday lives, living for the Lord. There's a reason he says that, because he adds this, verse 3, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. So Peter is saying here, he's saying, you, you and I, 
we've already spent plenty of time living apart from Jesus. And so there's no need now to turn back. Don't go back. You've already spent enough time there. You've, ever, you've already lived in your sin long enough. And you know the results of living that way. You know what happens. You know the results, what it leads to. And then he gives examples of what that life looks like in sin, being dominated by sin. He says, living in sensuality, that's unrestrained indulgence. Passions, drunkenness, orgies. By the way, that word orgies there, it means having feasts to pagan gods. They would have these meals where offerings and the food was sacrificed to pagan gods. That's what he means there by orgies. Drinking parties, that's pretty self-explanatory. And lawless idolatry, which is worshiping other gods. And then verse 4, he says, With respect to this, they, meaning the world, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. In other words, they slander you. They gossip about you. They bring difficulty to your life. Why? Because, because you live for the Lord. Because you look, act, and speak different from the world. You know, I was, I was thinking this week, I was thinking this week, studying this passage, I think it was maybe even Thursday, um, how, little, how little has changed, <laughs> how little has changed since the first century. Peter, really, this portion of the text, he could be describing 2021 with these words, right? I mean, this literally describes every secular university. <laughs> this is every single one in our world. This is soul. This is, this is Hebangchan, where the physical location of this church is. This is, this is just right outside of our, our doors. And, and Peter is saying, you've had, you've had more than enough time, church. You've had more than enough time, follower of Jesus, living like a Gentile, living apart from Christ, living as a person who doesn't know God. And so don't join them. Don't be tempted to go their way when life gets hard. Don't live like unbelieving people, but instead live according to who you belong to, which is one of Peter's central messages in the letter. Live, live like you are in Christ. Why? Because you are. Even if you are slandered then, even if you are ostracized, made to be an outcast, Peter says, don't go their way. Stand firm. And again, remember the context here. Remember the context. Peter is writing, Peter is writing specifically to a group of people, to a very small group of people who had left the culture while still living within the culture. They were no longer participating in the ways of the world. Not because they were moralists. Not because they were legalistic. right? No, they had been radically changed by Jesus. They had been radically changed by the grace of God. And so they understood, they understood the call on their lives to center everything on the gospel for their joy and for the glory of God. 
But this way of living, Peter tells us here, this way of living within society, it was radical, radical within the culture. In fact, listen to what the Roman historian, um, if, if you don't never heard this name, you should know this name, Tacitus, okay? He's a Roman historian, wrote in the first century. He said a lot of things about Christians, non-Christian, Roman citizen, This is what he said about Christians. Short little phrase. He said a lot, but I want to point out this one little phrase. He said this. Christians have a hatred of the human race. That was his observation. Christians have a hatred of the human race. That's how the world and Rome viewed Christians at the time. They believed that followers of Jesus hated humanity because they refused to participate in pagan worship and to acknowledge the emperor as divine, as God, which was their civic duty as a Roman citizen. That's just the way it is. That's what it means to be a citizen of this country. You worship pagan gods. You acknowledge that the emperor is not just king, but he is Lord. He is divine. And they refused. They just would not participate. And so, and so, get this, within the society, Christians were considered to be bigots. They were seen as being exclusive. They were seen as being not tolerant. Sound familiar? A lot like the world's view of us today, yeah? Not much has changed. Our day is not much different. Our world, our city, still worships pagan gods. Looks a little bit different, but we do. They do. Our city, our city, our culture worships the god of money. He doesn't have a name, but worships the God of money, which promises a life of satisfaction and security, but only leaves us empty. Our culture worships the God of of power, which promises status and significance, but only leaves us isolated and alone. Our culture worships the God of entertainment, filled with theater, sport, games, which please our senses and and offer a a sort of escape from reality, but, but always leaves us wanting more. Always. Our culture worships the God of independence. That's a big one. The God of independence, where we believe it's not only good, but it is actually right. It is right to define life and living the way that we individually think is best. It is our right to do that. And we know this. That if you reject any of those gods, you will be ridiculed, maligned, considered not tolerant, bigoted, All because you don't worship modern-day idolatry. All because you look different, act different, and speak different. 
And I think it's really important for me to say this as well. Really important for me to say this. We know, we know as followers of Jesus, I think even the world knows this to an extent, we know that our sin, our wrong actions, wrongdoing, can and often leads to pain and heartache, difficulty. There's consequences. We understand that. But how often, listen to me, how often do we actually think and understand that even our obedience, even our obedience can and will lead to suffering in our lives? That reality, that truth, is sadly so often overlooked, even among us. We live in a day, we live in a time when it is a a prominent Christian thinking, a, a prominent Christian teaching that health, wealth, A a good life by the world's standard will come to you if you just do the right thing and you just live the right way. But listen to me. That That is so clearly a false gospel. That is not, that is not Christianity. And it is not, not what Jesus taught. I mean, ask yourself, did Jesus' path, his right living, his right doing, did his path lead him to a life of health and wealth? (laughs) Come on. No way. Jesus suffered and died for walking that path. And so this is the truth, that when we live as Jesus lived— when we truly, not just follow him, truly follow behind our king, when we truly take his path, we will face harm, criticism, hardship, and heartache as well. It is coming to you. A life of following Jesus is a life of carrying the cross. It's a life of carrying the cross. And I'll never forget one of my teachers, mentors when I was young, just in seminary learning, he asked me a very simple question when I was trying to figure out what it looks like to live like Jesus. He asked me, I'll never forget it. He said, James, when does carrying the cross become comfortable? When does carrying the cross become easy? And I sat and think, and he answered for me. When you put it down. Only when you put it down. The Christian life is marked by... Is marked by suffering. It is marked by pain and difficulty and hardship. It is inevitable. If you truly follow Jesus... And Peter wants us to see that here. You will be ridiculed, persecuted. You will suffer because of your right thinking and right living. It will happen. And so so when discouragement, 
When the pain, when heartache does inevitably happen, Peter wants us to know that it's going to happen so that we won't be discouraged, but be encouraged. Oh, here comes the suffering. Good, I'm on the right path. Here's another hardship. Good, I'm on the right path. Oh, the culture's against me. Everything's going on. Great, I'm following Jesus. Be encouraged by that, not discouraged by that. Peter says, arm, arm yourself with this way of thinking. Suffering for doing good, suffering for living rightly is inevitable as we follow Jesus in this world that is not our true home. You are an alien. You are an exile. You are a stranger. So why are we surprised when we're treated that way? Anybody? Help me. (laughs) Amen? Jesus' path was paved with suffering. And our lives will be too. So know that. Understand that. And you'll be prepared. You'll be prepared. Well prepared. Equipped. Armed. For the road ahead. Number two. Number two. Some of you are like, please stop. (laughs) Please stop. (laughs) Number two. To endure suffering, we need, to, we need to know, another way to arm our thinking, we need to know that judgment is in Jesus' hands. Judgment is in Jesus' hands. These last two points move really quickly, so, so stay with me. Look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. Judgment is in Jesus' hands. Verse 5. But they, speaking of unbelievers here, non-believers, the world, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. I want to be, be clear here. Peter actually here, other times maybe, other times the gospel writers, yeah, but Peter is not being vindictive here. He's actually not being that harsh here. And what I mean by that is, is Peter's not saying, uh, like, hey, don't worry, don't worry, God's going to get those non-believers who, who hurt you. He's not saying that, not in that way, not in that tone, because that's not Peter's ultimate purpose. His purpose here is to simply remind us that unbelievers, non-believers, the world, and our unjust suffering do not have the final word in our lives. Your suffering, your difficulties, your hardships, your trials of many kinds, they do not have the final word in your life. That at the end of it all, God himself has the last word. And therefore, everything, everything is in his hands. God will judge the living. In other words, those who are alive when Jesus returns, his second coming, and, and he will judge those who have already passed away, the dead. Everyone, everyone will face judgment on the last day, Peter says. That day is coming. We're waiting for that day. And so this is Peter's, this is actually Peter's pastoral encouragement here. This is Peter being a good pastor for you. That yes, yes, life might be hard Maybe everyone, maybe everything seems to be going against you. Maybe you feel like giving up. 
Maybe you feel like going back to your old way of life, but don't. Don't keep moving forward because, because God's just judgment is coming. It's coming. Your hardships, your heartache, your trials, your suffering, again, will not have the last word in your life. God sees you. He knows you. He loves you. And your victory Your victory, like Christ, is coming. So be patient. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Don't try to to fight for yourself. Don't try to avenge yourself or, or, or take matters of life into your own hands. Simply trust the Lord, knowing, knowing with certainty that on the last day you will be found innocent covered in his righteousness, if Jesus is the cornerstone, if Jesus is the all in all of your life. Peter says, arm yourselves with this way of thinking. Arm yourselves, prepare yourselves. Know that in the end, in the end, everything, all, all things, your suffering and pain will be vindicated All wrongs will be made right. You can trust Jesus. Put it in the bank. Everything is in his hands. And then finally, number three. To endure suffering. To endure suffering. This is another way to arm our thinking. Uh, We need to know that our hope, our hope, is in the gospel-secured life to come. I wish I could make that a little bit shorter for you. You're writing violently. Okay, I'm giving you a second. We need to know that our hope, our hope, is in the gospel-secured life to come. Verse 6. This is verse 6. For this is why, he says, this is why, and he's talking about the context here, talking about the coming judgment. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Oh boy. (laughs) What? (laughs) Okay, now, we'll pause just for a second. There's a lot of room for uh, misinterpretation there. So what is Peter saying there? The gospel was preached even to those who are dead. What's he saying there? Is the gospel preached to the dead? Or was it preached to the dead in that people get a second chance after they die? Did that happen? Or even now, can you believe in Jesus after death? Definitely not. <laughs> Definitely not. That, that view should be rejected very clearly. Very clearly, again, based on the rest of the New Testament teaching. And no one, no one uh, gets a second chance after death. But another reason, I think, just even practically, I I, I know that's not what the text is saying, because let's remember this as well. What's Peter's goal in this entire letter? He's been walking us through this. It's to convince, encourage followers of Jesus to persevere, to endure suffering, to remember who we are, and to keep going. His message is, don't abandon the faith. Don't leave Jesus. 
And so if that's his central message, why would Peter teach that, if, that we could have a second chance or we do have a second chance after death? It wouldn't make sense. And so this is not Peter saying that the gospel was preached to those who were actually dead. Unfortunately, the English doesn't, at least in the ESV version, the English doesn't really help us much here. Um, But this is Peter referring to those who heard the gospel while they were alive, but have since died. Okay, That's why the NIV, NIV version actually translates it this way. We don't have it on the screen, but you can listen to it to me. You can read that on the text, but then listen how the NIV says it. The NIV says, For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead. And that's why the NIV translates it that way, which I think is better. This is why the gospel was shared while these individuals were still living. And look at what it says. Next verse. That though though judged in the flesh, the way people are, pause, this is talking about our, our physical death now. It's talking about the reality that we will still die physically because of the curse of the fall. Right? We, we know, we've talked about this in Good Friday, we talked about Easter, right? We know that Jesus conquered death, but that victory, that victory over death will not be fully realized until his second coming, right? Until then, we all, as followers of Jesus even, we all still physically die, that's what he's saying. But in Jesus, in Jesus, he concludes, they might, we might live in the spirit the way God does, A little bit wordy there, actually pretty simple. This is the promise of the gospel here. This is the promise of the gospel, the promise of eternal life for those who trust in Jesus. That in Jesus, in Christ, following our physical death, for those who have trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior, after physical death, we will spiritually, spiritually enter into heaven or what's sometimes referred to as we will go into the intermediate state, it says in the New Testament. And it's there, it's there we will be until Jesus returns at the end of the age, the day of the Lord, when the new heavens and new earth begins. And it's there that we will receive our resurrected bodies. That's big theology in a short little verse, okay? So Peter wants us to deeply know this. To to know that we have true hope. We have true hope in the gospel-secured life to come. Which is also, by the way, why even today, why we preach the gospel. Why we preach the hope that we have in Jesus to all who are willing to hear That's why I talk about the gospel up here. Typically, select people to come up here who is going to talk about the gospel all the time because the gospel is the only hope that we have. It's the only hope that we have. It's the answer to everything. God is holy. We are not. God is good. We are not. God is just. We are not. He is perfect. We are not. And yet, and yet, despite that gap that stands between us, 
God, in his great love and mercy, God entered into the very story that he made, became like one of us, lived a perfect life in our place because we can't. We can't. And then on the cross, on the cross, died in our place by taking upon himself the just wrath of God. And then even more, he did not remain. Amen. He did not remain in the grave, but rose, rose victoriously from the dead to show, to show that all his words, all of his works were true and fully trustworthy. And then, and then he ascended on high. He ascended into heaven, seated, sat down at the right hand of God above all earthly and all spiritual powers in the universe. And why, why, why this gospel? Why this news? So that you and I, you and I who are finite and sinful by nature, and therefore separated from our creator God, without hope, without help, might be forgiven of sin. Sin, past, present, future, and be brought into the love of God to know him and to enjoy him forever. This is the gospel. It's the good news It's the good news that though we were far from God, we can be brought into his love and be with him forever. We can experience, we can experience God. We can know God. We can can feel God because of Jesus. This is our great hope. And so, so, are we arming our minds with these realities, with these truths of the gospel? With this hope. You know, in Peter's time, in his day, in the first century, the world, unbelievers, viewed the death of Christians as proof, as evidence, that there was no advantage to becoming a Christian. That was their message. See, this hope, this, ever, this everlasting, eternal life that they're all preaching around, they, un- they misunderstood See what they're preaching to you. Your life is going to be full of joy, love, peace. They're going to live forever. But what? They just suffer. They're poor. They have nothing. And then they just die. Just like the rest of us. There's no advantage to this life. And unbelievers then, and unbelievers now, They think that way because they don't get the whole picture. They don't see it. That death, death is not the end. And that's why we say the best is yet to come. Not because your your best life is waiting for you tomorrow as you are in this earth. No, no, no. The best is yet to come Because after death, you'll be with him forever. As followers of Jesus, then, we have everything to look forward to. Everything. This life and everything in it, among all of its beauties, 
And you know this, walking around, especially in the spring. I don't know about you, it's my favorite time, at least in Seoul. Going through Namsan Park and all, and all the cherry blossoms. and the, Taking pictures. And I see all of you do it. You post on Instagram. You know, you zoom in on the flower and all that stuff. I see it. You're all doing it. Okay? Some of you post it, some of you don't. But your phone right now is full of nature pictures. And why? Because you're captivated by it. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. This earth is full of beauties. But all of it, all of it are mere shadows compared to the radiant glories that are waiting for you, that are to come. By the way, this is why death in the scriptures is often referred to as sleep. Because that's what death is for followers of Jesus. Death is not the end. It's just a gospel nap. Where you close your eyes and then wake up to (laughs) incomprehensible, unspeakable glories that you and I will be exploring and enjoying forever and ever and ever. So listen, when you are on the brink at the end of the road, you feel like you are. You want to give up. Maybe you want to give in. No, no, that suffering does not have the last word in your life. Even death itself does not have the last word. Jesus does. Which should encourage us greatly to persevere. Peter says, arm yourselves with this way of thinking, church. Don't stop. Know that your hope is in the gospel secured life to come. Sometimes, um, just to be honest, uh, sometimes I even question, why am I doing this? Why am I here? This is hard. It's really hard. And it's, um, but it's moments like this. It's passages like this uh, that not just encourage me, but remind me, gently remind me. I think the Holy Spirit remind me, even just now. <laughs> remind me. Uh, James, this is why 
This is why I want you to be here. This is what I want you to share. This is not a popular message. I know that. It's not. But I think it's one of the reasons I'm here. I want you to know, and I want you to know, Peter wants you to know. The Lord wants you to know. It's hard, I know. But suffering is inevitable as we follow Jesus. That was Jesus' path, and it will be our path too when we truly follow him. So know that. Deeply know it. And continue to choose to follow him and his ways, even when hardships come your way. You might be, you might be rejected by the world, but it's worth it knowing that you are accepted by Jesus. Know that you have an advocate today. You have a defender who's going to, to, to make all wrong right. Everything is in his hands. He's in control. We have nothing to fear then as we face difficulties and hardships in this life. And then finally, know that you have a great hope, a great hope today. The world and its present form are passing away, but there, there's a city. We await a city that cannot and will not be shaken, where we will be with our Creator, our Lord, our King, in perfection forever. So church, harm yourself with this way of thinking. Know these truths. Do not despair. Do not grow weary when you suffer, but instead, trust Christ. Turn to Christ. Think rightly about God so that your heart will be full of admiration and full of joy, and and so that you will endure when times are hard. Let me pray for you.